Have you ever wondered why some people, ideas, and careers advance rapidly? We discover the mindsets and the actions behind them. Today we have Ryan Rossert joining us, who is current co-founder of the Sales Developers and co-author of Outbound Sales No Fluff. Uh, Ryan has a strong track record of leading sales organizations to favorable outcomes as he served as VP of Sales uh, for Silicon Valley startups Bushaka and Cellpoints before they were later acquired. Uh, early in his career, he co-founded the Lions and led eSearch Vision as their managing director. Ryan, obviously you've had a great career to date with some unique accomplishments uh, along the way. I'd just like to kick things off by hearing from you firsthand, uh, what were some of those early life experiences and how did they go on to shape person you are today? Sure. Uh, well, thanks. Uh, thanks for diving in here with me. Uh, I actually have a pretty non-traditional background, although I think most folks in sales didn't start off thinking, hey, I'm going to be a, a sales professional. <laughs> if you ask a lot of folks, they, they had another yeah. Uh, yeah. plan. Uh, you know, going way back, I, I grew up in, um, if you look it up, the like, poorest zip code in the state of Washington. So um, my parents were both janitors and I was the first person in my family uh, to go to college. And so when I was growing up, you know, you know, even going to college wasn't even in my sights. You know, I was I was hoping to just graduate high school. Um, a lot of drugs, a lot of uh, you know, violence uh, in the in the neighborhood I grew up. Like, I mean, literally the poorest and roughest area of the state of Washington in terms of uh, socioeconomic status. And then, you know, now you know it's like a, has a big meth problem. So um, somehow I uh, I got out of that uh, when I was young. I, I was always involved in pretty much everything from a very young age. I played every sport. I, you know, I started playing the stand-up bass at a young age. I was involved in student body government. I, I did all that stuff. Like anything I could do to stay busy, I did. Um, when I got into high school, I was a three-sport athlete, uh, football, wrestling, soccer, uh, four-year letter winner in two sports, uh, captains of my teams, um, ASB's student body president or vice president, I guess is what it was. Um, I was uh, on the in the orchestra. I was in ROTC, JROTC. I did everything, right? And um, I don't know, it's just something in me that was different. And uh, somehow that got me to college. Um, I got a math scholarship to Washington State University because uh, I was good at math, uh, terrible at English. Uh, my uh, my SAT score was uh, like a 1050, uh, but I scored um, almost perfect on math, and then like you know probably wouldn't have gotten to school <laughs> with English. Uh, and uh, so I went to, went to Washington State to study uh, math and engineering with the uh, idea that I was going to go back to um, my hometown uh, where I grew up, uh, the, the rough area, to be a teacher. Um, I was influenced heavily by my, my coaches and my teachers, and I feel like they really helped me um, you know, be in the position I was where you know, I'm now going to college, learning, and... Uh, um, that's kind of how I started. Um, of course, after I graduated school, I, uh, I didn't end up teaching. I, I, uh, I found my way, stumbled down to Silicon Valley. Uh, I graduated college in 2008, and that was the best time in our history, you know, if you think about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Getting a job was, uh, was rough, and going back to my neighborhood to be a teacher in that time was really rough. People were losing their jobs left and right, and 
the drug problem seemed to kind of persist higher than ever. And most of my friends were either in jail or on drugs. So it wasn't going to be a good situation for me. Um, but I had a few friends in college that had internships down in San Francisco. And when I arrived uh, the summer between graduation and student teaching, uh, that's what I was supposed to be doing, I, I was visiting some friends in San Francisco and I just was blown away. There was like Porsches driving everywhere. It was like the main car. Uh, <laughs> Ferraris were like parked on the side of the road. And I'm not joking you, like this is what I saw when I first came up out of the BART station. I was like, where, where is this place? I think this is where I need to be. And that's kind of how I, how I got started. Interesting, interesting. And I think um, looking back, I mean, there's a bit of, of varying environments that I think you were a part of uh, throughout that time. Obviously, you said you grew up in a, in a not so great area, but um, found your way into um, some good academic and athletic environments, which helped to shape some um, different elements of who you are and your skill set overall. Uh, what can you say about uh, putting yourself in the right environment um, as an entrepreneur, as a professional? Uh, I think, you know, whether you're working a career job in a salaried role or you're looking to build a business, um, a lot of it comes down to the people that you're able to surround yourself with. And sometimes you need to push yourself to um, become surrounded by the right people. So. For you, had you identified that early on or, or did it just kind of unfold that way? And I mean, even beyond that, um, you know, what can you say about as an entrepreneur, just putting yourself in the right environment and putting yourself in a position to be able to learn the right lessons and get the right perspective overall? Yeah, I think you've kind of nailed that, right? I, I think, I don't know if I recognized it, but subconsciously that was why I was always involved in so many different activities and trying to always do so many different things that were outside of my, my home environment. Um, you know, I, uh, I didn't consciously say, Hey, I'm going to go find better people to be around. But I knew that if I spent my time, you know, around, you know, people that weren't engaging in these other types of activities, then there's a, there's going to be a better uh, outcome. Um, you know, when I was really young, I got into a lot of trouble. Uh, I got in a lot of fights and, you know, yeah. I was, uh, I was, uh, you know, I'd act out in school, um, you know, in, in elementary school, my, I was the kid that was always like in the principal's office. And, uh, but once, once there was a grading system, so when you move from primary school to middle school, as they call it in our, so grades uh, seven and eight, we went from like one, two, three, four as like, you know, behavior and stuff as involved in your scoring with your academic success to mm -hmm. how you did in school. Um, I maintain almost a 4.0 all the way through college. Actually, I graduated um, magna cum laude from Washington State with a math degree. Uh, but in high school, I, I had like a 3.997, almost 4.0, uh, because I was always driven on being the best, right? And so in order to do that, I think I subconsciously realized that you know, success comes when you're not in trouble. Success, you know, it's hard to be successful when you're um, dealing with things that aren't moving in the right direction. You know, when you come up with yeah, uh, yeah. problems that you shouldn't necessarily have to deal with. I think I realized that young, at a young age. And then sports had a huge impact on my academic driver. Uh, so, you know, in sports, you have to have a certain grade or you can't play. And what I realized is like, well, the difference between a C and an A is not that much more work. Just like pay attention and get it done. So why not? Why not perform at the highest level? Um, and, you know, I think, you know, as an athlete, you always have that mindset as well. Not all athletes, but 
um, a lot of athletes want to be the best at everything they do. And, and so it kind of drove that mindset. And so surrounding yourself with the right folks, with the right environment is huge. And it, you know, there's no way I would where I am today if I didn't, you know, didn't understand that. And um, certainly in, in high school, I realized that. Uh, and then most definitely in college, uh, as I as I chose who I was um, studying with, and then certainly now as an entrepreneur from a very, very, very beginning of my career, I've always tried to surround myself with individuals who know better than me. And as I've progressed in my career, I try to hire people who are better than me. Uh, I always want to be the, yeah. uh, the, you know, I always want to be the the dumbest person in the room, or I always want to be the person who doesn't have as much knowledge so that I can actually learn and grow. Um, and that is just so important uh, for success. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I agree with that. I think you're not truly growing unless you're having the conversations that make you a little bit uncomfortable and you almost feel as if sometimes in those conversations you're taking more than you're giving and um, but it's just that whole dynamic of being a student rather than a mentor and uh, people are usually willing to to give back to that um but just uh, i want to dig into that a little bit more because i think it's interesting to see how academics and athletics have actually fueled your career growth and have uh, you founded multiple companies and you've been a vp to um several successful companies leading up to to acquisition um but if i look at i think entrepreneurs in general or or my understanding um there are some that you know mimic the the experience that you've had and can reflect back on that but there are also a lot that i think feel that um a lot of academic institutions are they may not touch on or they overlook some some of the qualities that Know, contribute to being an entrepreneur or it's just not for them they learn differently they need to dive in they need to do things rather than theory and um, why do you think it was for you that you know academics was a driver for your development your ability to um be a key contributor in startup environments and and start your own companies whereas other people uh, it's just the academic environment doesn't give them near as much as diving into projects and figuring things out just by raw experience and failure, or maybe it was a combination of both for you as well. Maybe you developed other things later on that um, you didn't, you didn't get within that environment. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So for me personally, uh, I didn't study entrepreneurship. So, you know, I can't comment directly on does academia, does, you know, the traditional uh, academic path create good entrepreneurs or not just because I wasn't in that environment to learn how to be a business professional I was going to be a teacher but I think that because I studied uh -huh. becoming a teacher and I also studied math and engineering I was kind of primed to be successful at first as a as a sales professional and then you know any successful sales professional is is their own CEO and so yes. kind of that because of that path, I think I was I was lucky. And then, furthermore, uh, the very first company that I worked at, uh, the, well, the second company I worked at, the first one, was backed by AIG. And as I said, when the financial boom was happening when I came out of school, uh, the opposite of that, uh, they pulled the funding. My entire team was laid off. But um, but after that, I worked at a, a company called ESV Digital, and we did pay per click advertising um, back in 2008 when no one was supposed to be spending money 
uh, Google was slowly growing into the giant it is today. And I learned so much about how math applies to business and uh, the importance of understanding your numbers, uh, the importance of ROI and what that really means and how to actually uh, create business models in order to get deals done, uh, especially when budgets are tight. So I think, you know, my unique background of learning how to use numbers and math, all those things, solve problems. Uh, my experience out the gate doing digital advertising performance marketing, which is a really just a high frequency numbers game. And then, um, and then the teaching background, I think has really helped as I've progressed into leadership and ultimately some of the businesses that I've created where, uh, you know, I'm a consultant slash um, teacher, you know, in my environment. So I think all of those things led to what helps me be successful and having those fundamentals from academia, if you will, my academic background, what I learned has always played a part in my development, but I wouldn't ever be able to go straight from school and, and to do the things that I do today without having, you know, cut my teeth learning those lessons, right? Uh, the fundamentals of, of building a business are, you know, I don't think you can ever get that in a classroom. So traditional education certainly needs to change, but I think the foundational elements of some of the principles that I learned studying math, um, learning how to become a teacher, and then ultimately my, my real world experiences have really helped uh, drive me to where I am today. And, you know, it really seems like some of the success that, that you've had is a result of kind of picking things up along the way and then, and then rolling it into the, the competent uh, professional that you are now. Um, and one of those things obviously being sales. Um, so looking at that, I think, I mean, I think sales, you know, if you're on the outside kind of looking in, it can, it can get a, a, a bad rap or there's still a bit of a stigma around it. But, um, you know, I know myself and, and I'm sure you do as well that, you know, early on starting any company, I mean, that's the engine. You, you, you can't do anything else um, unless you're out there um, doing revenue producing activities. Um, so, I mean, you know, when you went to to start these companies, uh, I'd love to just hear a bit more about how uh, the sales mentality was really a, a the engine for for kind of helping you to build and how important that was, you know, early on when you were starting the sales developers and then um, some of your other ventures as well. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think you kind of stick to what you know, and because I've always been a professional sales. Um, employee, you know, I, I kind of went down the path of, of taking what I, I knew and, and trying to apply that uh, as an entrepreneur. So the very first company I started was the Lions. Uh, so it's a sales recruiting agency in San Francisco. So, you know, as an entrepreneur, you're always trying to find problems and solve them. That's kind of what you do. Um, if you're not doing that, I'm not yeah. sure what you're doing. Maybe you're just, maybe you're just, you're just an inventor or or you're, you're having fun with, you know, code or something, but, um, you know, I'm hobby. not a tech, yeah. Yeah, it's a hobby. So yeah. I'm not a technical person, although, you know, I have a math degree. I, I can't, I, I never really switched on the coding stuff. Uh, so as a salesperson, um, uh, I knew a lot. And then as a sales leader at my first company, I experienced a lot of pain trying to grow my team. Uh, people are our greatest asset. If we're going to grow, you, you still have to have bodies who are competent. You can mold and, and help be productive quickly. And, um, you know, the recruiters I, w I worked with at eSearch e Vision, um, they were just terrible. You know, they would send me candidates that, uh, you know, were, didn't know what we did, weren't prepared. 
and it felt I felt like the price point for the work they were doing was absolutely terrible. And so um, my first company that I, I co-founded with Matt McGraw, uh, Sean Passanisi in San Francisco, uh, was a sales recruiting agency. So the goal there was to um, provide a different experience for high growth tech companies and uh, find more folks like me. And the goal was to go and get individuals who are up and comers. You know, the idea there was like, hey, let's go get some folks coming out of like Cal and Stanford and some of these great schools. That's where everyone else is looking. But what if we can go and um, what if we can go to places like Washington State University or, yeah. you know, in the Midwest, find these, you know, hardworking, driven individuals and bring them in? No one was really looking at them. Bring them in young. And then as they progress through their career, find them the, the best next steps in their career so that they can accelerate and kind of mimic some of the trajectory I was on at a young age. Uh, but also helping the companies they're working with along the way. So that's that's when I started my first company, which is just what I knew, right? The challenges as a sales leader trying to find great talent, the challenges as an individual trying to find my first job with an non-traditional background and not having gone to Stanford and, you know, um, and kind of merge those two to launch a company. And uh, today, the Lions is probably the, you know, second largest, more, more successful sales recruiting agency in San Francisco behind Carolyn Carolyn Betts, Betts Recruiting, for the niche, right? Tech, tech sales recruiting, um, and that was a lot of that was a lot of fun. And it, there's, you know, just just going, drawing on my experiences. But what allowed us to be successful out the gate was, you know, I was the co-founding sales leader, so my job was just to go break down doors and tell the story. And uh, I did that quite successfully, helping us get into companies like Box, and Dropbox, and ClearSlide. Um, you know, some of these companies that are now. Yeah. The biggest, <laughs> biggest, sex, most successful tech companies, you know, before anyone knew who they were, um, and we helped them grow their sales teams um, from the very beginning. So um, that also helped me build a, a really strong network still within sales, right? Talking with sales leaders, talking with early stage founders, um, we were helping them find their first sales reps. You know, as I'm continuing to progress through my career, I now have that network that I can draw on. So, so that was kind of. A huge part of what you know uh, success uh, success came from having that strong sales foundation and the ability to just, you know pick up the phone and start conversations because those those customers weren't going to come to us they didn't know who we were um, and that yes. same principle you know I left that company and went back into um, sales leadership for a handful of different startups um, leading sales at venture back companies I always wanted to see after recruiting for a bunch of them I was like hey I want to I want to do this myself I, I know how to recruit I know how to lead uh, let's do that so um, you know I ran sales for a handful of companies all of those had been acquired one was Inc 5000 that was really fun yeah. um, and then one was acquired by us a, uh, a unicorn so I went from being at a small company to a really large company really fast and I learned all along the way that look uh, the talent pool is becoming more and more challenging uh, for organizations, especially in the Bay Area. Um, and this specialization of sales development was rising as a way to you know, produce your bench of talent, but the cost of those individuals was becoming quite high. So um, I thought there was an opportunity to uh, go and develop the talent, not, not find the talent, but to develop the talent. Sales development is starting to be an entry-level role, but you need one year experience. Like that's what all the companies were doing. So, well, that doesn't make sense. How are you, how are you supposed to get there? So um, my second venture, I, I launched Inside Sales Bootcamp, which was uh, like the tech coding bootcamps, but for sales development and uh, you know, helped individuals coming out of school or individuals making transitions from other careers 
learn the fundamentals of sales development uh, so that they could uh, get jobs at these high growth companies without having the experience. So we created a training program and like an internship program that have ultimately allowed them to get into their jobs. Uh, so this is just coming off of my, again, experience in sales, my experience in recruiting, and then obviously um, uh, seeing a huge problem in the companies that I was helping scale, um, especially the hyper growth companies like Sprinkler that we that was my last acquisition, the bigger company. You couldn't find enough people. They were paying people a lot of money just to find them. And a lot of times it wouldn't work out. Um, so just, you know, knowing what I know, keep building on my experiences and that's helped kind of me as an entrepreneur stay in my lane, um, and, and use that credibility and experience to grow and, and be successful out the gate. Uh, and then finally launching the sales developers that just spun off of the success of our book. Um, while running the bootcamp, uh, uh, there was a lot of, uh, individuals who were asking for a lot of books, but people don't, people don't seem to read, um, books cover to cover. In fact, I was reading a book, Take the Stairs by Rory Vaden, uh, New York Times bestseller. And, and the stats said that 95% of all books are never read, read cover to cover, which isn't too surprising. But then the second stat scared me is 70% of all books ever purchased are never even opened. So um, it got me thinking, you know, I'm buying books and sharing books and trying to get reps to learn from books, but they're never even really opening them. What if I could create a, a, a resource that people will actually open and read? And Rex and I were developing a relationship. He's a great writer. I had an idea. We put it together and, and wrote uh, Outbound Sales No Fluff as a, as a way for in, entry-level sales professionals to get the raw foundations of what it takes to be successful in sales so that they can you know, ramp in their first 90 days, be successful. Um, and that really took off. And people started coming to us saying, hey, how do we put this into our CRM? You know, we have a little bucketing system we talk about and like, hey, that sounds a lot of interest here. Uh, why don't we just launch a company uh, showing people how to do outbound sales? And that's what that's what sparked the sales developers. Interesting. Um, so what like what would you say? Uh, and just looking back at that, you know, some of the some of the salespeople that you've recruited and trained and developed over the years. What's the biggest hurdle or obstacle um, that you found for? you know, people breaking through, salespeople breaking through that threshold and just seeing that um, kind of pivot in abilities and and uh, the capacity to, to really drive results. Is there one or a few things that tend to really get in the way that you've noticed, um, whether psychological or, you know, whatever it is? Yeah, there's a couple of things that, you know, it's a pattern. You know, as a math guy, I always look for these patterns. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So the first thing is, you know, a lot prevailing wisdom says, and this is a big part of our new mission is to try to uplevel the perception and prof prof profession of sales. Uh, but prevailing wisdom says that salespeople are like co coin operated machines, right? If you're in sales, you kind of weren't able to do something else. And I just think that's a lot of um, <laughs> bull. Um, and especially in today's modern sales environment, when you're, selling complex software or services, uh, that's just really not true. Um, yeah. And so the first thing is like, you know, it's not a role that people should go into because they can't figure out something, something else. Like you have to be smart. You know, you have to have a high level of not just IQ, but EQ. It's really important. Um, and so the, the first thing is, is look, if you can't figure it out, you don't have, it just goes back to the beginning of our conversation, you know, the academic kind of pedigree. If you don't have 
your brain right, you're not sharp between your ears, you're just, it, you're typically not going to be successful. At least, again, not in these complex, more, more sophisticated sales environments, right? You have to understand how to learn. Um, you have to understand, you know, how to take something and develop it into your own. And, yeah. um, and that's something that a lot of reps struggle with because they just don't know how to learn. They don't know how to ask questions. They don't know how to keep it right. And they're just trying to check boxes all day long. And, um, yeah. you know, if, if you can't figure that out, you're just not going to get there. You're not going to break through. You might be average and you can, you can process the crap out of a sales process and make somebody who's not sharp between the ears productive, but they're not going to break through and be a top performer, right? They're just not going to do it. Um, uh, yeah. unless, unless you have an amazing sales leader and the best product in the world. Uh, but again, they're just going to be as good as maybe average on the team. So that's the number so one what, thing. What do you, what do you do with that person as a, as a sales leader? Uh, how do you handle that when you recognize that the ability or the desire to learn may not be there? Yeah. Well, so for me, I, I, uh, I've adopted sales assessments. Um, so I actually use a tool it's called uptick by acceleration, um, where in addition to looking at your sales personality and sales DNA, if you will, it actually has a cognitive abilities assessment built into it. Um, like it's literally math and reasoning time test. It will, people are like, what the hell is this? They're supposed to be seeing if I know how to sell. Like, you know, so I actually assess for those things in the interview process. It's actually the first thing I do. If you don't score high enough, I, it's black and white. I'm sorry. I get it. You could sell ice to an Eskimo, but uh, it's just not a fit for my team. So um, yeah. I, I assess for that now. Now, if someone slips through, um, you know, you, you have to give folks an opportunity to try to see if they can learn how to learn. Um, and I always invest in anyone that I'm bringing into my organization, you know, as much as much time, energy, and effort to make them successful as possible. That includes, you can buy, if you work for me, you could buy any book and expense it. I will get you a sales coach. We work now with uh, Southwestern Consulting. You know, I will pay for your sales coaching. I'll get you a coach, right? I'll help you learn how to sell, um, you know, and learn how to learn, by the way. It's not just selling or, you know, selling in general, but learning, learning how to be a consultant in our, but if you can't get there eventually, you know, unfortunately we have to part ways. Okay. Um, that if you look at the testing that you do, and I think I think standardized testing in general. I mean, there's there's a lot of obviously um, you know valid considerations you can take away from that. But um, I mean, your your assessment of a salesperson's creativity, and you know some of these intangibles that might not be directly measurable uh, in a test like that. How do you how do you account for that? I mean, creativity. And you know, interpersonal abilities and things like that are, are obviously extremely important as a salesperson and, and as an entrepreneur. Um, you know, where where are you accounting for that when you're when you're recruiting? And uh, great question. That that same assessment does assess for those those things you're looking for, like uh, EQ. You know, d do they have interpersonal, intrapersonal skills, things like that? It literally has a score for all of that. Um, yeah. Now, whether it's perfect which or not, is, which is more important out of the two? I mean, those more tangible, yeah. you know, mathematical abilities or um, the latter. Uh, it's it's a blend, right? I mean, you don't have to be if you are super high on 
cognitive abilities, but you don't have those others, I'm not going to hire you. You still have to have those other things as well. Um, but the cognitive abilities is number one. Um, after that, those other things are extremely important as well, right? You, you have to be able to, you know, I, I say this, um, I think I wrote about this in the afterword of sales development, uh, Corey Bray's book, uh, you know, it's cognitive abilities and then it's, you know, emotional intelligence, right? That EQ component. It's just yeah. so important. Yeah. You know, you, you have to, you have to know uh, how to <laughs> work the room and um, it's not about you. It's about the environment. And, uh, um, you know, that's really important. Uh, that's also something that can be developed, just like learning can be developed. So, you know, there's, there's ways to, if they're on the edge to, to work that there's a great book called uh, emotional intelligence 2.0. They have like an online assessment you can take to go deeper in that. And then they have modules you can work on uh, to start to develop those skills. Highly recommend that for, for folks that are trying to build that within their teams. Okay, perfect. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Just is there the ability to develop that? Is there the the ability to kind of adopt it if you don't have it um, naturally? So uh, that makes sense. But I'd like to maybe shift gears here and and I guess get to uh, a little bit more personal, not too personal, don't worry, and just talk about um, you know beyond what we've spoken about. You know, if you look at mid career um, or even recently. You know, was there anything that you experienced as a person that kind of took you off balance that um, made you think differently about something uh, or, or, you know, just a reset where you had to say, okay, this is uh, unfortunate that this has happened. Um, but, you know, I've got, I've got people to lead and businesses to build. I need to, need to find a way through it and, and maybe develop some additional perspective um, while doing that. Um, you know, everybody tends to have something, um, curious, uh, you know, what, what your story might be in that regard. Yeah. When I, uh, started the lions, you know, the very first company I started, I had huge aspirations to, again, you may not know the reference and others listening may not know the reference a little bit, but becoming the Scott Boris of, of recruitment. Right. I'm, and, I'm a big I'm a big Billy Bean fan from Moneyball. I love that story, uh, and I think there's lots of of crossover between um, that and and a way to a good way to think in business. Um, but um, not as familiar with with Scott. Anyways, go on. Yeah, <laughs> that's another that's another good uh, definitely another good uh, book and 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 uh, a way to think about business and, and how it relates to sports but um for sure so, so when we launched the the lions we had this this aspiration of i don't think we ever really wanted to be this big recruiting firm we wanted to be a few guys that were doing recruiting differently we even had a different business yes. model we were we were attaching we were attaching to the reps saying hey instead of paying us an upfront fee we pay you pay us a small quarterly fee for as long as the reps with you so we're we're aligned they're developing if they're performing you could pay us if they don't you don't have to pay us anymore, right? But we would represent that person to their next role. Again, that's that um, talent agency Scott Boris model versus uh, traditional recruiting. Um, but as we grew, um, and there was some some differences in terms of how we wanted to think about our business, um, the way we wanted to pay people out, etc. And um, there was conflict with uh, uh, my co-founder, and uh, that that was something where you know looking back. Um, I, I was really young, um, probably a little arrogant and, um, you know, 
I, I ended up leaving the company to go back to USV Digital to be their GM. This great job offer, but um, I left because of like a, a conflict of vision and direction. And you know, as I look back and reflect on that, you know, in a lot of ways, it was a a really good move because I wouldn't be where I am today. I wouldn't have had the additional experiences um, that I've had. But I also realized that you know that conflict of like direction and leadership within the organization, uh, you know, being able to actually work through those problems and not give up too quickly, especially as an entrepreneur, um, are, are really important. I feel like the lessons learned from that, you know, as I, as I continue to go throughout my career, they kept coming back. You know, you always have issues in one way, shape or form with, uh, with others. Um, but, um, you know, looking looking at how I handled that situation, it really wasn't um, it really wasn't done in a way that I I, I would be proud of today. And so um, learning from those um, those early conversations, trying to develop those skill sets from you know an individual to a team player uh, were really important. So I think that's one one thing that you know mid career change of directions would probably have been one of my biggest lessons. I was going to say co-founder conflict early on. That's uh, certainly not a new one. Um, but how do you know in a situation like that, um, you know, when you should, when you should make a transition and move on and, and, or, or stay and hash it out and, and, and really have the right conversations and, and figure it out. Cause it's probably not always clear and there are a lot of factors, but um, if you were to come across that same situation now, would you handle it the same or, or differently, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, fir- the few lessons that come out of that are in the beginning before you jump into a venture is to really make sure that the individuals you're working with are aligned, you know, on the mission, on the vision, uh, and have a good understanding of um, what their, you know, not immediate interests are, but what the future looks like for them. You know, what, what is a day in the life? Sounds kind of funny to say, but yes, you know, what does a yeah. day in the life look for, like for you in three years? What do you want to be doing within the organization? You know, and it's not just your roles and responsibilities, but it's lifestyle and things like that. Um, time and time and time again, I've, I've heard this from a lot of other entrepreneurs, co-founders, et cetera, where uh, you have a founding team and, you know, some are really interested in building a business and taking the cash out. Others want to keep investing and growing. And right away, you can identify that it's going to be a problem. You know, once the business starts doing pretty well, uh, some entrepreneurs don't want to keep scrapping away and uh, waiting for some sort of exit. The equity isn't the driver. It's the freedom and and cash they can pull out of a business versus, um, you know, versus something else. So um, the first lesson is just really try to almost like, you know, co-founder, marital counseling uh, type of thing, right? Where, where are we going? What are our goals? What are our objectives? And it's not just we have this common vision of trying to solve a problem, but the psychographics, the lifestyle, all of those things you should really try to understand before you dive in with a, with a new venture because it's going to be really hard. Your plan is never your plan. Things are going to change. And you want to make sure that you're always striving towards the same um you know, the same goal. And uh, I think that cash conversation is really, 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 really important, uh, even before roles and responsibilities, uh, because there's, it just, it just comes up, right? So that's, that's step one. And then obviously how you deal with that is to try to get ahead of it. You know, when you start to see changes that are off the plan is to get back to it. And if you have that 
initial North Star guiding principle, where are we going? You can always revisit it. Hey, it's looking like we're not going to get here by then, right? You know, so if your goals are always uh, from X to Y by when, right? You can always say, hey, it looks like we're not going to be there by then. So what are we going to do? Make sure you're having those conversations often and not allowing them to, to, to fester. Um, and cash is just an example. It could be other things. Um, uh, hiring plan. It could be, um, you know, <laughs> the software you're choosing. It doesn't matter what it is. But um, having a, a conversation around uh, those things when there's a deviation from the plan um, and not allowing things to fester over time is, is just really, really important. So, you know, if I would have done that um, earlier, you know, at the Lions, I think we probably would have been able to continue to move forward in the right direction. But, um, but that just, it, it, it just waited too long, you know, months became quarters so what before. Is your, what is your framework for, for adapting in the face of changing circumstances? Do you have a, do you have a decision-making process or, or a framework that you kind of stick to? And when it comes to, you know, the, the many things that can pop up when planning the direction of the business or, or just reacting to, to something significant. I don't know if I have a framework, um, like it's not official. I'm not, I don't, I don't write it down. Um, of course. Yeah. But, but I think I have a bit of a heuristic, if you will, where, you know, I really want to try to first gather as much information as possible um, around what's happening <laughs> and not, it's just trying to get all sides of the story. So if things are changing the why, what's going on um, so that we can, when we get into a, a conversation around that, if it's a, if it turns into conflict, you, you actually have all the information you need to, you know, be objective and and not so subjective, right? I think a lot of times, too many people bring emotions into uh, solving problems, uh, and they focus on the person and not not the issue. And so the first thing you want to do is try to understand. The, the why and around, is it a lack of process? Is it a, la a lack of, you know, uh, understanding uh, before you get to the individual? Um, and so that's that's kind of the framework I use and I've been trying to adopt more and more and more uh, so that it's not personal. It's it's business, right? <laughs> As they always say. And, um, and again, if you have uh, clear goals, you have a clear vision, you can always go back to that to say, hey, the reason why we're going here is because, and we all agree that that's where we're going. So if this, then that. And that's probably my math brain that, that kind of chooses to do things that way. Um, but that's typically how I address these types of things. Perfect. Yeah, I mean, um, if you were to look at uh, you know, your recent work with the sales developers, we can just focus on that a bit more. Um, for you, um, so in your in your perspective, Ryan, I'm curious um, what the what the mesh is between you know this outsourced um, outsourced sales uh, service that you're providing and uh, you know an internal uh, digital advertising strategy, you know funnel marketing, and whatever fr framework that you're using overall. I think um, we've probably seen a shift from um, you know, traditional digital advertising to 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 more outbound sales in recent time, and I think that's obviously just a product of um, the the overall uh, dilution of you know the SaaS market in general, and and 
the amount of options that are out there um, having that kind of hunter mentality and, and being able to go out and create the opportunities rather than um, waiting for your content to do it is is you know more and more important um, but uh, you know with the organizations that you work with um, you know what considerations if any are you putting in place as far as uh, you know developing that outbound strategy but um, you know how how that really coexists with um, the marketing strategy in general and uh, you know where do you where do you really see it going over the next 10 years do you think outbound selling is going to continue to grow at the pace that it has in importance uh, um, or you know will it kind of continue to be outshined by inbound channels uh, it's a great question I, I say that modern outbound is the new inbound and what do I mean by that um, look sales development really isn't sales uh, whoever no matter how much people want to try to say it's sales, it's not. It's marketing, in my opinion. It used to yes, be called telemark. Yeah. Used to be called telemarketing. Um, and, and so, you know, when you're doing when you're doing outbound, uh, modern outbound in particular, uh, which is also marketing, you're always trying to solve a simple equation: target, message, channel, timing. Right? Who am I targeting? That's your audience. Right? Who's involved? Your ICP or buyer persona. What are you saying? Where are you saying it? And when are you saying it? Right? Is it, is it right? So when you think about it that way, modern outbound done correctly, what I mean by that's the new inbound is, you know, a phone call, cold call, cold email, uh, which is t traditionally the outbound channels, you know, you can actually add social and you know, video and some other things in there. If you if you want sending physical goods, you don't. You're not expecting this. Now it's here. It's an impression. And if you're sending it to the right person with the right message in a channel that they actually engage with at the right time, you're going to have success. And so, when you think about inbound, the problem with inbound when you're doing content marketing, uh, you're doing search marketing, you can. You can do, you can have some success with intent, right? Uh, the intent of this piece of content is going to drive traffic looking for these types of keywords, uh, but it's a wide net and you can't really control. A lot of stuff comes in that's not good. It's not a good fit. It's not in your swim lane. And it's really, um, you actually, it's, it can be disastrous to your company if you start to sell to people who aren't, we call in your swim lane, right? So inbound is great to drive interest and awareness and you need to do it. But outbound allows you to start that funnel strategically, one-to-one -to, -one, to the exact person you want to talk to or the exact person you want to send this message to. And so when we think about the rise of sales development, which is still not being done correctly in a lot of organizations, uh, modern outbound sales development, I think, is going to continue to be more and more successful if folks understand that a strategic cold call one-to-one -to, -one to the exact person I want to reach out to, not with the intention of, hey, give me 30 minutes to see my demo, but similar to, hey, I may have seen that your organization or you right now might have this problem. And here's some information on how to start solving it. Would yes, you like to learn yeah. more? And then, then you start the follow-up. Now you have them in your funnel. And that follow-up can be with ads, with email, with webinars, with video, with whatever. But um, that, that approach, that process, that methodology, that mindset, I think is going to continue to grow because there's so much noise with traditional inbound marketing. Everyone's doing content. Everyone's doing podcasts like this. Everyone's doing 
they're going to continue yeah. to do these things. But how do you sort through all the noise? You know, all your all the folks that are listening to this episode right now or into the future, right? Which ones are actually potentially future customers of you? And that's where you can strategically engage them using outbound, modern outbound fundamentals to drive and earn, so to drive engagement and earn the, the, the reason for following up and earn the respect for follow-up. And then obviously if you can help them solve a major business problem, well, you're going to have yeah. a customer. So that's, I don't know if I answered the question directly, yeah. but I think it's only going to get more and more important that folks understand that's how it works. But if you look at everyone doing inbound, everyone doing outbound, there's a small subset of the market that's doing it right. So um, just to, to touch on, I think I, I, I totally agree with you there. I think, um, you know, when the job is an SDR is done well, you're not, you're not a salesperson, you're a marketer, you're a business analyst. Um, you're a lot of things essentially. Um, and, you know, Seth Godin, he's kind of a, a bit of an idol of mine. I listen to a lot of his content says that good marketing nowadays is, um, you know, work that matters for, for people that care essentially. And I think uh, with a lot of digital channels, there's, uh, there's a lot of noise. I mean, people have more choices than ever. They're, they're getting a new message every time they, uh, you know, jump on their phone or their computer. It's, it's everywhere. And in a lot of cases, it's general. So, you know, tying back to the importance of a good outbound strategy, I, I think you're right. You really have that opportunity to, um, to, to send the right message to the right person in a way that um, is going to resonate with them in a way that stands out. And you mentioned that earlier on um, when you were thinking about the title for, for your book, you know, 70% of, of books don't get read. So how do we um, create a, a book that, that will get read? Um, so, I mean, what can you say about, you know, in today's environment with more noise than ever, how do you craft the right message, whether it's for a book or, as an SDR or as a marketer, you know, how do you, how do you resonate with people um, by putting the right words and images or whatever it is together um, overall, would you say? Yeah. Well, and so I think the, the emergence of sales and marketing is like, you just need it, right? You, working together, it's a beautiful thing. Working not together, it's terrible. Uh, how do you think about the right message? Uh, we talk about this in the books, lesson one, solve a problem or go away. Too many marketers and sales reps, eh, too many people in general, uh, focus too much on their product or their service, their features, their functionalities. You can do this and this and that. Uh, they don't focus on, um, you know, what what that means to them. What's the what's the outcome of all of what we're offering? And ultimately, does that actually align specifically to a top three? or five priority within that, that organization, that, that individuals within that organization's role and that organization's fit within what we call our swim lane. And so how do you craft that message? I mean, you've got to be able to first and foremost, know the buyer, know what they do day in and day out and what truly is a pain versus yeah. like, versus and a pain that, that is aligned to a priority uh, versus just some other crap. Too many organizations try to sell, hey, we're like that, but cheaper. You know, look, I don't care if you're cheaper. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if, yeah, if I have a yeah. tool that's getting the job done, most people don't. Maybe my, I do. I'm, I'm the CFO, CEO. Uh, I need to drive EBITDA, et cetera. But like, it's not going to make me change. The disruption of change is just too much for, you know, saying, hey, we're like this, but cheaper. 
Like that doesn't make any sense. But you know, when you think about how to how to really craft the right message, you know, instead of saying what you do, you should say how you help your customers. And if you can say how you help your customers in a way that's aligned to a problem I have right now, well, you're going to have a better chance of getting me interested. Um, so too many people think that uh, you know an increase in revenue is solving a pain. That's not a pain. I mean, obviously I need to increase revenue, but I don't. I'm not. I'm not yeah. like what, what? What do I'm doing to try to increase revenue? Where you can help me do that? Like there, there's so many things around understanding the role that most people, myself included, just don't understand. So the first thing you want to do is go and interview that that persona. Don't just make it up. I mean, some companies that are doing this pretty well will talk through this. They'll write all the pains down and they'll try to map the pains to features. That's the world class way to do this and then create messaging. But if you've never if you've never been in the role, done the day-to-day -day job of whatever it is you're selling into, well, go and learn as much as you can about that. Because then when you're in conversation, you'll understand why your product or service is actually going to benefit them today. And again, that's why I think, you know, I've stuck to my swim lane, if you will, in terms of um, sales, right? I get sales. I've been a salesperson. I can talk about the problems of sales all day long. Same thing with marketing because I've sold into that segment my entire career. Um, but as I get into, you know, trying to sell to a doctor, well, you know, I don't know what their day looks like. I better go talk to a doctor. Um, you know, so if there's a new product or service, the first thing I'm going to do is interview them. And that's going to help, help me understand how to message to them. And if you can shift that messaging from what you do to how you help them, uh, that goes a long way. Perfect. Yeah. So just a, an obsession for customer value and, you know, understanding person on the other end, you know, what, what are they concerned about on a day to day? I mean, is that like being able to do that is not always easy. I mean, you, you, you need to have those conversations first. So I think it's, it's obviously a process of just, you know, getting on the phone or, or, or as a marketer, sending out some messages and some content and, and really seeing what, resonates overall um you know, how important is that that trial and error process um overall i mean are you a believer of you know if you if you want to do something whether it's you know building a business or selling into a vertical or whatever it is are you a believer of jump right in are you a believer of you know just figure it out trial and error experimentation or do you place more emphasis on let's do a lot of research up front and then dive in um what are your thoughts on that yeah, I don't think it needs to be one extreme or the other. Um, in fact, uh, I would err on the, I would err on the side of action, um, than than too much research. Obviously, you need to have some research to justify what you're doing. But let's be honest, until you start having conversations in market, you're not going to know. You can create the most amazing business plan uh, ever, right? But until you actually talk to people who are going to open their checkbooks and pay for your product or service, you have nothing. So I'm a firm believer of yeah. making sure you've thought through things. Of course, you know that's kind of table stakes. But don't overthink. Yeah. And 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 I'm a, I have a huge bias towards action. Rex and I talk about this when we launched the sales developers. We were saying we're consultants with a bias towards action. Right? We weren't just telling you how to do it. We would do it with you. We would do it for you to prove it or learn from it. Because the reality is everybody's business is different and everybody's uh, go-to-market is going to be different because, well, your business is different. And even if you have a similar product or service, 
your, you know, what you're saying, how you're saying it, how you're going to run people through your process is going to be a little bit different. Um, so it's all about uh, the the scientific method, test, optimize, you know, yeah. learn, and um, have a hypothesis, test it, look at the outcomes, and move forward, right? And I think you have to always be testing, to always be learning, always always be adapting. I mean, what works today will not work in six months. I guarantee that. I, I guarantee that in today's buying market. So you have to be consistently learning. D don't don't spend too much time overthinking things. I think a lot of people try to create these crazy AB multivariate tests for their email campaigns, and then they'll send it to 100 people and say, oh, well, this open rate's better. It's like, it's 100 people. That's not even statistically relevant. Like, just go, right? If you want to test subject line, have one you've used always, test the second one, go. You want to test a subject uh, called action? Go. Don't overcomplicate it. You can't be doing multivariate tests. So, and they want to use this software that tells them to do all this. Like, come on, just go. The reality is that's just working now. It's going to change. So you're spending way too much time testing things that really don't matter. And the more activity uh, you have, the, the higher chances you're going to have of getting a conversation. And that's what matters. Go and talk well, to people. Well said. Well said. So for you, uh, what problems are are you currently focused on solving? I mean, what's what's next for you, um, with the sales developers, with you know anything else? Um, what's top of mind, and and where are you going essentially? Yeah. Uh, so for me right now, I'm really trying to build this business you know differently than any other company I've ever um, you know worked on or worked for in the past. And and um, you know one of the things that I'm challenged with right now is is time management and prioritizing you know, what's most important, um, that that's really most important and trying to develop that culture within my entire organization. So there's zero waste. So the idea of the sales developers is, you know, eliminate a hundred percent of the non, uh, selling activities for your organization, you know? Um, and so if we're going to do that, we also have to do it ourselves. So how do we think about process, 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 optimization all the time, but um, ensuring that we're, we're adapting the right process, using the right technologies, and then learning from that over and over and over again so that we're as efficient as possible. And um, while doing that, realizing it's okay to say no, no to certain customers, no to certain tools that we might want to be you know, reviewing, no to a lot of things. Um, and so uh, I personally have been struggling with that a bit because I get so excited about what's new, what's on the cutting edge of innovation uh, but sometimes that 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 uh, uh, really provides a lot of challenges around productivity uh, and then also ultimately uh, making sure that we're kind of sticking to the vision as well so time management prioritization and then creating that same culture within my entire organization so they know what to say no to what to spend their time on and seeing if we can really change the way businesses grow um, and that's going to start with the way we grow so that's that's my biggest problem right now uh, that I'm working on. Um, and, and it's a lot of fun, right? Learning every day, trying to figure these things out. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it was great to have you on the, uh, on the podcast, Ryan, uh, appreciate the insights and perspectives and uh, hopefully we can connect again at some point. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me on. Um, definitely looking forward to staying connected and um, excited to, to hear uh, others feedback on this, uh, on the show. Absolutely. Cheers. Thank you. Have a good one.